morning. The Bible is a book of fairy tales written by men, and evolution is a fact. I'm sure these weren't the first words you'd expect to hear out of my mouth this morning, and neither of those statements are true. But um, if you'd been speaking to somebody about Jesus yesterday, and they'd said those things to you, what would you have done? What if they'd ask you about dinosaurs? Or maybe fossils? Or where did all the races come from? Or maybe it was carbon dating or something to do with Noah's Ark? Or maybe they wanted to know um, why there's so much suffering in this world? Have you heard questions like this? Yes? Now, it's important you understand what these questions are. They're actually challenges to the Bible. In fact, they're challenges to the book of Genesis. And they're conversation stoppers as well. Almost certainly the person asking these questions doesn't expect you to be able to give them an answer. They're hoping that you'll stop talking about it and move on to something else. Maybe even they'll think they might be able to get you to, um, to question your own faith. Uh, you see, the skeptics in this country have enough of an understanding of the Bible to know what it, it says. And the underlying implication of these questions is very clear. If you can't explain the first book of the Bible, how can you expect them to believe what the Bible tells them about Jesus? Now, I'm operating two laptops or two computers here today. I have difficulty usually operating one. So if at any stage I look like I'm lost, it's probably because I am. Um, as you've heard, my name is Mark James. Uh, I have a BSc in organic chemistry with honors from Victoria University of Wellington. And I like to describe myself as a lapsed, long-age evolutionary atheist who now works full-time for a creationist organization uh, as a speaker and as an events coordinator. And yes, I have swallowed an awful lot of pride in recent years. Creation Ministries International is a, a ministry that's set up to support the church in proclaiming the gospel message by upholding the truth of the word of God, especially where it comes under attack through the use, or should I say through the misuse, of science. We believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, the creator God of the universe. Our bottom line is that the proper interpretation of scripture is to take it plainly. In other words, we read it as the authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intended it to be understood. Our bottom line is that, um, sorry. <clears throat> now, any expert in Hebrew grammar worth his or her salt will tell you that Genesis is clearly written as historical narrative. So I have to assume that the Holy Spirit intended us to read the text as history which means the account of origins presented in Genesis 1 is a factual presentation of actual events. God created the universe and everything in it in six ordinary 24-hour Earth days. And based on the genealogies recorded later in later chapters, uh, coupled with some recorded dates in history, we can actually calculate that this happened around about 6,000 years ago. Now, if you told me 20 years ago that I'd be doing what I do today, I probably would have recommended psychiatric intervention. I'm here today to talk to you about science and the Bible. But there's actually two main things that I want to achieve in the next 40 minutes. Firstly, I want to encourage you in your faith. Sorry. Ah. Yes, okay. See, I told you I'm, I'm a Luddite. So first of all, I want to encourage you in your own faith. I want you to understand that real science, properly interpreted, actually support, it doesn't conflict with the biblical account. It actually, real science actually confirms the Genesis account of creation. It, it, it confirms the account of the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and much, much more. Knowing that the Bible can be trusted from the very first verse has had a profound uh, effect on my own faith. And I pray that it will be the same for you. And second, I want to encourage you in sharing your faith. See, I want you out there in the world boldly witnessing 
to your friends, to your family, to your workmates, confident in the knowledge that the Bible can be trusted from the very first verse. But before I get started, I want to tell you a little bit more about CMI, and I want to explain why I believe that our ministry is so vitally important. I have a couple of questions for you. Which of these two men do you think looks more comfortable? The guy with the umbrella, right? Why? Because he's covered. He's protected from the rain. Okay, so which of them do you think is more likely to have a successful day? Again, the guy under the umbrella. Why? Because he's prepared. He's prepared for whatever the day might throw at him, and he's equipped to deal with it. See, we live in a world that is saturated with anti-biblical ideas. To be confident in our own faith, we need to protect ourselves from the deluge. We need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And to boldly share our faith, we need to be prepared. We need to be equipped to answer the challenges that unbelievers will throw at us. In 1 Peter 3.15, we read, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. Now, does this sound like a suggestion to you guys? It's not. It's an instruction. We Christians are instructed to be prepared to share our faith. But to do this effectively, you need to be equipped with answers. Answers to the questions that unbelievers will ask. And this is where CMI comes in. Uh, we are effectively an information ministry. We, produ we produce books and DVDs and tracks for all levels of understanding, from very easy to read and easy to understand through to highly technical. But the important thing to know is that they're all written by experts in their fields. Our number one resource, Creation Magazine, goes out to more than 110 countries around the world. And of course, we have a, a website. Uh, and we're on Facebook and Instagram. And all right, I'm very biased, but this is an amazing website. It has over 12,000 fully searchable articles on creation and evolution. And um, it has a very easy to remember web address. Can I get you to say this for me? It is? Oh, excuse me. We can say it louder than that. It is? You know, it's been scientifically proven that you're now more likely to remember this because you've actually said it out loud. A creation. Uh, Every day we get testimonies of lives, uh, people whose lives have been changed because people like you have passed on the information on this site. And best of all, the information on creation.com is absolutely free. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now, oh no, not another website that I have to follow. Well, just for you, we've come up with a very simple system that will alert you when there's something of particular interest on our site. We have a free email alert service. It's called Infobytes and it's designed to keep you up to date with important breaking news in the creation evolution debate. And there are links to the related articles on our website. Uh, all you need is an email address. And if you have an email address, I would strongly recommend that you subscribe to Infobytes. We're not gonna spam you, and you can always unsubscribe at a later date if you decide that it's not for you. Um, and there's no better time than now, so I'm gonna get my faithful volunteer, Hans, to come to the front. Hans follows me around wherever I go. He's heard me speak the same talk so many times. I feel for the man. I really do. So all you have to do when the sign-up sheet gets to you is jot your name, your email address, and your contact details in the spaces provided. And then please pass it on so that everybody gets a chance. OK, so let's start talking about some of the science. Who do you think has the most scientific facts? Creationists or evolutionists? Who thinks creationists have the most scientific facts? Okay, who thinks evolutionists have the most scientific facts? You know what, the fascinating thing is, both sides of this debate have the same scientific facts. We all look at the same universe. It's the same rocks, the same fossils, the same plants, the same animals. Creationists and evolutionists don't disagree about the facts. We disagree about how the facts are interpreted. You see, facts exist in the present. We can, they can be scientifically tested in the present. And these tests can be repeated to verify the results. We call this experimental or operational science. 
and it's responsible for our medicines, for our cars, for your cell phones, for my laptop. In fact, all the technological advances we have today are a result of operational science. But you see, things like the origin of the universe or the origin of life, these are historical events that can't be tested and they can't be repeated. So this involves a different kind of science. Again, the scientists examine the facts that exist in the present, but this time the results are interpreted to try and work out how the facts came into existence. We call this historical science. Now, historical science does play an important role in our understanding of past events, but it has one major limitation. You see, to interpret the evidence, to interpret the facts, scientists have to make assumptions. In fact, you can't do historical science without making assumptions. And these assumptions are often based on the science, scientists' understanding of how those facts came into existence in the first place. Long-age geologists, for instance, they'll start by assuming that the processes we ha see happening today have happened throughout history. But can you see that this automatically rules out the very possibility of a global flood before they even start looking at the evidence? Now, I, I make assumptions too, okay? I'm honest about it. As a biblical creationist, my starting point for examining the scientific evidence is the creation account in Genesis. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that the Bible is a science textbook. It's not. But it is the unchanging word of God who cannot lie, which means it has to be true in everything it teaches. And Jesus himself confirms this when he prayed for his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So whenever the Bible touches on matters that have scientific implications, it must be true. Otherwise, the skeptics are right and the Bible can't be trusted. Today, we're going to take a look at the f a few of the more common scientific challenges to, bi to biblical authority. And I want to give you some answers that are easy to understand and easy to explain that you can use to show people that the biblical account is correct. First up, what about the geological features? Don't they take millions of years to form? So what do you do if you get asked a question like this? I want you to get excited, because you're going to have an opportunity to actually share some truth with these people. So what are the facts? Without question, we find billions of dead things, we call them fossils, buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Long ages, starting with the assumption that the earth is old, attribute these rock layers to gradual sedimentation over hundreds of millions of years. And in this account, the fossils supposedly accord, uh, record the sequence of evolution over time. But to a creationist like me, the rock layers are exactly what we would expect to find as a result of the flood of Noah. And in this explanation, the layers, the fossils record the sequence of burial during the flood. So we have two, we have facts, and we have two explanations for these facts. All we can do is try to work out which of these exp explanations gives us the best understanding of what we see. So first we'll start with the rocks. All over the world we see strata like this, often tens, even hundreds of meters thick, consisting of layers of rock stacked one on top of the other, almost like pancakes. And these are not just localized features. Layers of rock like this are found all over the Earth. In fact, there are, the same layer can be traced from the White Cliffs of Dover through to the Middle East, and for hundreds of thousands of square kilometers across North America. Now, long-age geologists would have us believe that these, were these layers were laid down gradually, either at the bottom of um, lakes or tranquil seas, or as a result of multiple local floods over time. But if that really is the case, why is it that we only ever find evidence for um, tilting and erosion once all the layers are in place? First, let's straighten up these layers. Now, the layer you can see that I've highlighted at the bottom in red, that layer was supposedly laid down millions of years ago, 
And then over a long period of time, it was buried and the next layer formed. But can you see that there's absolutely no sign of erosion while this process was taking place? You see, the effects of water in particular should have caused channeling and unevenness in the upper layer, and the, the top of the, the layer, as the next layer was laid down. But apparently, every one of these layers lay there perfectly flat for millions of years while the next layer formed, and during that whole time, there was absolutely no erosion. Then, once all the layers were in place, two things happened. Firstly, the whole formation was tilted. Now, we know this tilting happened after the layers were laid down, because if the tilting had happened as the layers were being laid down, we would have ended up with some of the upper layers fat at one end and thin at the other. I mean, that's what gravity does, right? And then, only then, did the erosion start. And it was huge. And not just down the red line that you see that I put in there. Can you see that the whole front of this cliff face has eroded away. I have to ask, is this a realistic explanation for what we see? Okay, here's another one for you. Why is it that we only ever find soil on the top layer and not between the layers lower down? See, soil is made from decomposing plant life. Was there no plant life for millions of years while these layers formed? Yet this this absolutely beggars belief, but it's the only explanation if the layers were laid down gradually. To make matters worse, we actually find fossilized plant material in the rocks, but there's no soil for these plants to grow in, and there's no soil formed by the decomposition of these plants when they die. Now, these features I've shown you, and there are many more that I won't have time to go into today, they are exactly what we would expect to find if the layers were laid down rapidly by flowing water during the flood. And when you know what to look for, the evidence for the flood is everywhere. Anybody recognize this place? The Grand Canyon? Has anybody actually been there? Yes? Okay. It's an incredible place. If you ever get a chance to go to the Grand Canyon, take it. There are hundreds of meters of sedimentary rock layers stacked one on top of the other, eroded only from the top down, and with no soil formation, no soil between the layers at all. It's amazing. But there's something even more amazing about this part of the world. At some stage in the past, scientists now tell us that there was sediment at least one and a half kilometers above the rim of the canyon. That's above the rim of the canyon, one and a half kilometers of rock. It's gone. And it's gone without trace. I have to ask, what could have caused erosion? on such a massive scale. You know, I was talking to an old friend of mine about this, and I got to the end, I asked him that question, and he looked me in the eye and he said, I wonder why the aliens mined all that dirt. <laughs> the flood of Noah was a catastrophic event that inundated every square inch of land on this planet. The very highest mountains were covered to a depth of at least six meters. Now, this is the pre-flood mountains, okay? The Bible doesn't tell us how tall those mountains were. Huge volumes of churned up sediment would have been created. And as, that, uh, uh, as the sediment settled, different particle densities would have formed layers rapidly with no soil formation and no erosion between the layers. Then as the floodwaters abated and the mountains rose up, as the Bible tells us, these layers would have been subjected to enormous erosion, resulting in much of the topography we find around us today. Now these sediments would have contained minerals they would have contained biological agents and, of course, water. Exactly the ingredients required to rapidly cement the particles together to form solid rock. If you want to know how quickly solid rock can form under optimum conditions, you just have to look at concrete. It's a very similar process. How long does concrete take to go hard? Less than a day? And if you have any doubt at all that all the land we see around us was once covered by water, you just have to look at Mount Everest. The summit of the tallest mountain on Earth is made of sedimentary rock laid down in water. And these rocks contain thousands of fossilized shellfish. At the top of Mount Everest, there are fossilized shellfish. 
No disrespect to Sir Ed, but the clams actually got there first. So the biblical account provides a more coherent explanation for the rocks. But what about the fossils? Fossils are the preserved remains or traces of plants, animals, and other organisms. They are a record of death. But you see, fossilization is actually a very rare occurrence today. Why? Well, we know that when something dies, either on land or in water, it doesn't lie there for thousands or millions of years while it's gradually covered up with sediment, does it? What happens when something dies? Scavengers attack the carcass, and they pull it to pieces. And then microorganisms get involved, and they continue the process of disintegration till there's very little left. I have to ask, would this result in the beautifully preserved fossils we find today? Not likely. You see, fossilization actually requires rapid burial. Only rapid burial will seal the organism from scavengers and decay so that fossilization can take place. And you know what? We find some amazing examples of fossils that can only be the result of this sort of rapid burial. This is a picture of a female ichthyosaur. Now, some of you who were here last time I spoke will have seen this before, so I don't, not, I don't want you to answer this question. But I have to ask, how do we know it's a female? Is it the long eyelashes? No, the little handbag? No. This one I can only use when my wife's not in the room. Is it the credit card? No. We know this is a female because it was buried and fossilized in the process of giving birth. Now, ladies, I know that labor can take a long time, but it doesn't usually take millions of years, does it? And here's another one. Oops, gone the wrong way. No. This is a picture of a fish fossilized in the process of swallowing its lunch. These are instants in time that have been um, recorded in the, in the fossil record. Okay. Oh, and you remember the clams I told you about on the top of Mount Everest? You know what happens to shellfish when they die? The ligament that holds the two shells together, it, it decomposes, and the shells fall apart, which is why we find half shells on the beach, right? The clams found on the top of Mount Everest are actually in the closed position, which means they must have been buried rapidly before decomposition could start. Okay, so now we know that we need rapid burial to start the fossilization process. But surely once it's started, fossilization takes a long time, right? That's what we're told. Well, actually, no, under the right conditions, it can happen very rapidly. This is a picture of a fossilized bowler's hat, actually found here in New Zealand. Now, I must tell you that bowler's hats and the bowlers who wear them aren't usually millions of years old, right? Uh, and this is not the only example we have of rapid fossilization. In fact, well, there are many, many examples, including teddy bears. This teddy bear has turned to stone. Are teddy bears millions of years old? No, they're not. So contrary to what we're led to believe, the fossil record does not require slow and gradual processes over long periods of time. And an honest interpretation of the scientific evidence actually supports the biblical account. Ah, but what about the dinosaurs? How do we explain dinosaur fossils that are more than 65 million years old? Now, the honest, honest answer is we don't have to. Back in the mid-1990s, a, a graduate student by the name of Mary Schweitzer found visible soft tissue in an unfossilized dinosaur. It was a T-Rex bone. Listen to what she said. She said it was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone, but of course, I couldn't believe it. The bones, after all, are 65 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? You know, the, answer, the honest answer is they can't. Um, Dr. Um, Schweitzer herself said, if you take a blood sample and you stick it on a shelf, you have nothing recognizable in about a week. But they still find... Now, this, was amaz this amazed creationists. I mean, how could these things last for a few thousand years? But millions of years? 65 million years? It, it just beggars belief again. Um, these, these, these discoveries are um, absolutely catastrophic for the long-age evolutionary worldview. 
Now, we don't, um, if you want to find out more about this, we have a, a really good book just released recently. It's called The Deep Time Deception. Uh, and this will help you to answer questions on fossils, rocks, carbon dating, dinosaurs, and, and much, much more. Okay, let's move on. What about evolution? Isn't evolution a fact? You know what? If evolution is a fact, in fact, a lot of people say, you know, doesn't evolution prove the Bible wrong? If evolution is true, it does prove the Bible wrong. Okay? Why? Well, evolutionists would have us believe that life started out as a single-celled organism, and over the course of many millions of years, it's evolved to produce the huge variety of complex life that we see today. Now, this is called biological evolution. But in the biblical account, all the different kinds of life we see today were created fully functioning over the course of six days during the creation week around about 6,000 years ago. So you have to see that these two um, explanations are mutually exclusive. If one of them's true, the other one must be false. According to the evolutionary account, death, disease, and suffering were a part of the process that led to the creation of man. This clearly puts death before Adam. But in the biblical account, death only came into the world as a result of Adam's rebellion. So there are major theological problems with the evolutionary account. And of course, there's a huge difference in how life came into existence. So again, we've got facts, and we've got two different explanations for these facts. So let's see which of these explanations best um, explains what we, we, we see. According to Wikipedia, that found of all knowledge, Biological evolution is the change in the inherited characteristics of biological populations over time. Now, we know from operational science that bio biological populations change over time. But is this really evolution? So let's look at a very simple example. According to the Bible, how many dogs did Noah have on the ark? Any ideas? Two? Okay. We can't be absolutely certain because the Bible doesn't say there were two snowies on, on or whatever on, on the ark. But the Bible does tell us that two of every kind of, of um, uh, animal came to Noah to be kept alive. So two dogs is a reasonable assumption. All right, how many different breeds of dog do we have today? There are hundreds. So changes in the inherited characteristics of dogs must have happened even in the biblical account. In fact, this type of change is central to an understanding of biblical creation. So what's going on here? Well, the inherited characteristics of biological populations are stored and passed on from organism to organism by molecules in the cell called DNA. I'm sure you've all heard of DNA? Yep. Our genes, which play an important role in defining our characteristics, are a part of our DNA. Now, in this example I'm going to show you, which is actually taken from Creation magazine, we're going to assume that hair length in dogs is governed by one pair of genes in the dog's DNA. Now, you can't usually see these genes on the front of the dog, but for today's example, you can actually see that these two dogs both have one gene for short hair and one fluffy gene for long hair. Now, when these dogs reproduce, the dog's DNA is copied and each parent passes on just one of these two genes. So you can end up with dogs with two short hair genes, so they have short hair. Dogs like the parents with one short hair, one um, long hair, so they have medium hair. And dogs with two long hair genes, which have long hair. Okay, so now let's see what happens if we put these dogs into a cold environment. Can you see the short and medium-haired dogs? They don't particularly like the cold. So they're less likely to survive and reproduce to pass on their genes. The long-haired dogs, however, they thrive, and they do pass on their genes. But they can only pass on the gene for long hair, which means we end up with a population of dogs all with long hair. This is an example of what's called natural selection, sometimes called survival of the fittest. I'm sure you've heard those words. 
the dogs best suited to their environment have survived to reproduce to pass on their genes. But see, what would happen now if the environment warmed up again? Can you see what we've done here? In just two generations, we've eliminated the gene for short hair. So we can't have short-haired dogs anymore. This is why the Wikipedia definition is so deceptive. Changes in the inherited characteristics of biological populations can and do happen over time, but only within kinds of organisms. These dogs look very different to their parents, to the original pair, but they are still dogs. Nothing new has been created, and the changes that are observed actually involve a loss of information, a loss of characteristics. Biological evolution has to explain the arrival of new characteristics. And again, this has to happen in the DNA. Changes to DNA are called mutations. I'm sure, again, you've heard that word. Okay. Mutations are random copying errors that happen as the DNA is copied during reproduction. But DNA is the biological equivalent of a highly sophisticated software system. In fact, Bill Gates tells us that it is the most sophisticated software system known to man. And new characteristics require new coherent information to be added to the, 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 this software. And this is a major problem for evolution. According to the theory, life started out as a single-celled organism and over many millions of years has evolved to produce human beings. Now, a single-celled organism has DNA containing about a million... The easiest way to describe them is to call them chemical letters. Human cells have DNA containing approximately 3,000 million chemical letters, which means random copying errors have to explain the addition of some 2,999 million letters containing the information that codes for bone cells. I mean, single-celled organisms don't have bones, right? Heart cells, kidney cells, muscles, nerves, uh, all in the right place, and just as importantly, not in the wrong place. Do random mutations happen? Absolutely. Do they add information to DNA? No. By a wide margin, random mutations actually destroy information. The stark reality is no random mutation has ever been discovered that adds complex coded information required for a brand new feature to be added to an existing organism. Now, evolutionists will dispute this, and they'll point to what they call beneficial mutations in support of their theory. But even these beneficial mutations we find when we look at the biochemical pathways actually involve a loss of information. And I want to give you a very silly example. I want you to imagine that I'd been born with a mutation that left me with no legs. Would we consider that to be an evolutionary advance? No, I've lost my legs. But what if we lived in a world where athlete's foot was a terminal disease? Can you see that I've got no legs, which means I've got no feet, which means I can't catch athlete's foot, so I'll survive. But you lot, with all those nasty legs and feet of yours, would be susceptible to the, the disease. Can you see how a loss of information can be uh, a benefit in certain situations? But when it comes time to head off for lunch, who's going to be the last person there? Unless I get help, obviously. OK, so what does this tell us about our origins? Well, according to the theory of evolution, uh, random mutations have caused genetic information to gradually increase over time. Uh, starting in the distant past with the appearance of the first life form and culminating in life as we know it today. Am I looking? No, in life as we know it today. But if we take... You know, evolution also predicts that we should see a continuation of this increase into the future. I mean, why would it have stopped now just when we start looking at it? But if we take a closer look at what's actually happening today, what scientists observe is a relatively rapid loss of genetic information. Exactly the opposite of what we would expect to find if evolution were true. Now, this is not good news for life on this planet, and it's certainly not good news for the human race. As many as uh, 100 to 300 extra mutations are added to every new individual at conception. 
And these mutations accumulate over time. At this rate, we as a species, we're rapidly heading for extinction. But now let's take what's observed in, in operational science and let's go back into history. If we do that, what we see is increasing genetic complexity. With each preceding generation having fewer mutations than the generation that comes after it. Um, compared to your parents, you guys are all mutants, okay? And when I say mutants, think Quasimodo, not X-Men, okay? You are not getting better. And your grandparents have fewer mutations than your parents. And this reduction in mutations stretches back into history. Go back the right number of generations and there's the distinct possibility of arriving at a point where DNA carries no mutations. How would you describe DNA with no mutations? Genesis 1.31 tells us that at the end of the creation week, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. In other words, everything was created perfect. The Bible also tells us that since the fall, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And in fact, in the verse before this one, we read that creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay, which means that since the fall, everything, including DNA, has been decaying, which is exactly what we see happening. An honest interpretation of what scientists know about DNA actually confirms the biblical account of creation and the fall. Again, real science supports the biblical account. Now, if you want to go into this one a bit more deeply, I'll just very quickly tell you about this book and DVD that we've got called Evolution's Achilles Heels. It's actually authored by nine PhD scientists who got their degrees from secular universities, and it highlights the major flaws with evolutionary thinking. We Christians, we don't have to avoid talking about science. We can have confidence in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. It is true in everything it teaches from the very first verse. It is the history book of the universe. And we should be out there in the world telling people this. Unfortunately, it's a very rare occurrence today. Too often as a ministry, we get people tell us that, isn't this a side issue? Aren't we Christians just called to reach out to the lost, to evangelize and preach the gospel? You know what, to most unbelievers, this is not a side issue. This is the very reason that they don't believe. But there's more to it than that. You see, the, the Genesis account of creation is actually foundational to the gospel message that we preach. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Genesis and he reminds us that death was a result of Adam's rebellion. And then he highlights the gospel connection. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that what we believe about Genesis is a salvation issue. We are saved by grace through faith. But how we interpret Genesis is central to our understanding of why we need to be saved in the first place. When we call into question the reliability of the facts of Genesis, we're effectively taking away the foundation for the whole gospel message. This can and often does become a salvation issue when we share the gospel with unbelievers. And Jesus warns us of the consequences. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham tells the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You know, we are living in a society that has swallowed whole the lie of evolution and millions of years. Our schools, our universities, the media, and even many of our Christian churches are effectively teaching people that Moses got it wrong. And if Moses can't be trusted, how can we trust the rest of the Bible? Is it any wonder that so many people reject the gospel? 
Now, we've only scratched the surface today. I've given you a, an appetizer, uh, an introduction to some of the amazing information that you can use to reach the lost. But there's so many more questions that, and challenges that people face. Do you guys understand that there's a battle going on for the souls of your family and friends? Yeah? There's a war raging. And these issues, evolution and millions of years, are a huge stumbling block that stop people from believing that the Bible might even be remotely true. Do you ever get the feeling that some of your relatives, family, friends might think that you're a little bit crazy? Yeah? Wouldn't it be great to be able to show them that you're not? So I have a challenge for you. Actually, it's a challenge that I presented earlier on. Are you ready to protect yourself from the deluge of anti-biblical ideas that the enemy's going to throw at you? Are you ready to take every thought captive to obey Christ? And are you prepared to equip yourselves with answers to the questions that unbelievers ask so that you can reach your friends and your workmates and your culture with the truth of the gospel message? Are you willing to provide that same protection for your family, for your children, and for your grandchildren? Now, if you're going to take up this challenge, you need to have tools. You need to have answers. You need to have weapons in order to demolish the arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And it's kind of impossible for me to try and, give you, um, to try and cover everything in a short talk like this in just one day. I'm going to be going back to, Hans and I are going back to the North Shore. You're the ones left behind in this community. You're the ones waging the war in the, this area. So I want to take an opportunity to get a little practical with you. Probably the best resource I can leave you with is Creation Magazine. Now, does anybody here get this magazine? Yes? Okay. You guys are my, my sales reps, okay? Go out and tell everybody how great this magazine is. Um, it is the most read publication of its kind in the world today. It comes out four times a year. And uh, so there's every three months, something new supporting the biblical account is coming into your house. Um, and it has no paid advertising. I want you to imagine what would happen to a copy of Woman's Day if you took all the paid advertising out of it. There wouldn't be an awful lot left, right? But what's left in here is life-changing information. Not just for you. It will encourage your faith but it can be life-changing information for the people that you talk to. It's a resource like no other of its kind in the world today. One of our speakers, a guy by the name of Rod Walsh, um, has some amazing testimonies about what this magazine can do. Rod and his wife Nancy travel Australia in a motorhome, and they have a Noah's Ark built into the side of the, the motorhome. And they just drive into town, and they open this thing up, and people flock around to look at it. And he tells the story that one day he was driving through uh, North Queensland town, and a man recognized the logo on the van and rushed out in front of him and waved him down. This guy had an amazing story to tell. He'd actually found a creation magazine in a doctor's waiting room, and it had changed his life. He'd actually he'd gone on to become a Christian because of it. Okay? Can you see who the unsung hero of this story is? Somebody, somebody that we'll probably never know left a creation magazine in a doctor's waiting room. That person didn't even have to talk to anybody. That person will probably never know this side of heaven that people were actually influenced by the decision that they made. Uh, Rod also tells the story of a man who um, gave five subscriptions to five of his a subscription to five of his family members. When Rod spoke to him, four of them had come to Christ. It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay. As a little incentive, if you do describe to subscribe today um, to get this information into your home, we'll start by giving, if you have a one-year subscription, we'll give you a back issue for free. So you get five copies for the, the cost of four, and you can start reading straight away. And if you get a three-year subscription, we'll give you the back issue plus two free DVDs as well. One of them's called Rapid Rocks, which actually shows that the evidence for Noah's flood is everywhere, from the smallest rock through to the largest landscape. And if you already get the magazine, you can take advantage of these offers by extending your subscription. OK, to avoid a bottleneck at the resources table, obviously we need to get names and addresses. Hans is going to hand out sign-up sheets for um, Creation Magazine now. Um, all you have to do when the sign-up sheet gets to you is fill in your contact details in the spaces provided, tick the box or boxes to indicate which of the options you've chosen, 
and then please tear off the coupon on the right hand side and bring it to the table to make payment and receive your free gifts. And the magazine today actually also includes um, five digital versions with the printed copy. So you, you can give it to your friends, your family, your aunts, your uncles, your nieces, your nephews. Uh, the heart of our ministry is that this magazine would make a big difference in this church and in this community. Okay. While the... Um, actually, have I... Okay. It's not quite working as well as I wanted it to, so you're seeing everything straight away. While those um, magazine subscription forms are going around, I just, I'll show you a couple of things that you might find in the magazine. Um, this is a very relevant topic today. COVID-19, okay? How can we explain COVID-19 from a biblical perspective? But before we do that, I want to introduce to you my ball in his field. What can, we tell, what can you tell us about this guy? He's not a danger to anybody unless you go near him. He's where he's supposed to be, okay? As long as we don't poke him with a stick, he's not going to hurt anybody. But what if we were to put him into a china shop? Now he's somewhere where he's not supposed to be, right? And he can cause mayhem. Sorry, I'm catching up here. So how do we explain killer viruses? Well, the first thing you need to know is that most viruses are actually beneficial. Virtually all viruses are required for life. I don't know whether you know this, but in your body, you have more bacterial cells than you do human cells. If you want to lose weight, get rid of the bacteria, okay? And in your gut, there are more viruses than there are bacterial cells. These viruses are essential to life. A lot of them actually, um, they maintain the bacteria colony population so that the bacteria can't consume us. Okay, so these viruses are designed to work in a, in a particular situation. There are checks and balances to keep them under control. But if these checks fail, the virus might actually become dangerous. It might become a disease. It might even jump species. And then it's even more dangerous because it's actually in an organism where it's not supposed to be, just like the bull in the china shop. COVID-19, well, they believe it's actually come from bats. In bats, it probably started, well, it did start out as a virus that was essential for life. It's mutated, it's got out of bats, it's in human beings, and it's causing havoc around the world. So what about the future? Well, we don't actually know, because this could go on for, uh, we don't know how long. We do have vaccines coming, which is great. But um, in 1917, the Spanish flu arrived. This killed up to 50 million people over the course of the next 40 years. It was very bad at the beginning, uh, much worse than COVID-19, and then over time um, it was picking up 14, they, they now know it was picking up 14 mutations on average per year. And by the time it finally went extinct, and it did go extinct, 10% of its genome was mutated. Now the crazy thing is that this virus, they actually kept a sample of it in a lab in Moscow. And it escaped. And so Spanish flu started up again. Not as bad as the first time, but it was back. Which is why some people think that maybe this virus, COVID-19, might have escaped from a lab. I'm, I, I don't know on that one, okay? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But uh, you can see why people see what happened with the Spanish flu and think it might have happened with COVID-19. COVID-19 will very likely mutate itself to extinction. How long will it take? We don't know. So the summary is viruses are a very good part of God's created order. Most play beneficial roles, but in this sin-cursed world with suffering, death, and disease, they can be a problem. God has not promised us long life or good health, but he has promised to redeem this sin-cursed world, and we have to look to him for hope for our redemption as it draws near. And I want to go through one last one, because in this current environment, this is a, a big question that people are asking. Where do all the races come from? I mean, racism around the world is a huge issue. Um, and it highlights a very unpleasant but logical implication 
of the theory of evolution. If we evolved from an ape-like ancestor, then it's highly likely that some people groups are more evolved than others. Evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould admitted, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So I have a question for you. How many races are there? Hmm? Okay, let's make it easier. How many skin colors are there? You know, if you had to describe me to the police, you say you saw me going through somebody's handbag and I took something out and I headed out through the door, which isn't very fast nowadays, and you, had to you called the police and you had to describe me to the police. How would you describe me? I'm old, yes. I'm bald, I wear glasses, and I am white. Good. Somebody, twice now, people call that pasty. <laughs> but am I really white? You know, when, when the police catch me, and the New Zealand police, they always get their man, and I am not very fast. When they catch me, they're going to take a picture of me, aren't they? A mugshot. They're going to stand me in front of a white screen. Is my face going to disappear into that white screen? No, it's not. Why? Because I have a pigment in my skin. It's called melanin, and it's dark brown. Some people have a little bit more of this pigment. Some people, sadly like me, have a little bit less. But every person on this planet has the same pigment. Okay? We are all different shades of the same color. How many skin colors are there? Just one. If you've been subscribing to Creation Magazine, you would have seen this picture. Two-tone twins. These gorgeous girls have the same biological mother and father. Here they are as a family. The parents are mid-brown. And you know what? This is not an isolated case. There are many cases around the world of twins with completely different skin tones. I grew up with two girls. My atheist brother pointed out I grew up with two girls. One of them was very dark, one of them was very light. They were twins. How does this happen? Actually, you know what? The better question is, why are we so surprised? If we read the Word of God as it's plainly written, we are all descended from Adam and Eve. How many races are there? Just one. It's called the, uh, the human race. Okay. Sorry, I have taken more time than I should have. I apologize. If you want to find out more about this particular issue, we've got a great book by Carl Wieland. It looks at human history through biblical glasses. Um, after a talk like this, uh, often people will ask, if I'm going to get something besides the magazine, what would you recommend? The best book to follow up a meeting like this is the book called The Creation Answers Book. This has answers to over 60 of the most asked questions on creation, evolution, and the Bible. Uh, I'm very biased, but I believe that this book should be in every Christian home. Uh, would anybody here like to get it for free? Yes? You're not going to like me? Buy the intro pack. You get Refuting Evolution, the best-selling um, creation book of all time, apart from the Bible, of course. Um, you get Origins in the Modern World, and we throw in the Answers book free of charge. Um, if you want to find out more about the... If you want to go into, uh, deeper into the science, the history, and the theology of Genesis and how it all fits together, this book's an amazing book, written by a New Zealander by the name of Jonathan Safety, And this is also uh, um, available as a 12-DVD teaching session as well. This is great for um, small groups. We've got some great children's books, dinosaur books, Noah's Ark books, and the real Noah's Ark, not those silly bathtub arcs that you see in most children's books. Um, and we've got this book, which I will go into very quickly. It's called The Creation Survival Guide. And this will help your youth to navigate school and university and come out the other end with their faith intact. This is, it's just $4.50. And don't forget the website at, what's the web address? You see, science works. OK. That's all I've got time for, and I'm sorry I've gone too long. If you've got any questions that you'd like to ask us, please come and see us at the resources table afterwards. And if you know of another church or a school that you think might like to hear this message, um, we'd love to hear about it. Thank you so much for being patient.